Wait, can I interject? Yeah. Can I ask, did you watch iCarly, like, back in the day? Yeah. <laughs> so they put that on Netflix? <laughs> yeah. So I, I started that. to rewatch it, and it just made me think of when you were talking about, like, teenage sex scenes, of, like, the fact that it's adults that are writing what the children yeah. say. <laughs> and in the first episode, it's, like, so cheesy watching it going back, but, like, at the end, so they like do their little web show, and it, they have a party at the end where they're wearing weird hats, mm-hmm. and like the teenage boys that are like, oh so so cute, they like come up to the girls and they're like, do you want to dance? And or like they said something about I don't know if it was the girls said that they were hot or like they said the girls were hot. They were like, yeah, it's pretty hot, and they're like, let's go dance. <laughs> and to me, I was just thinking that there were adults like sitting around writing this dialogue <laughs> for children to say to each other. Yeah, which is that's that's weird to me. That's like, no, for sure. I mean, anytime I watch uh, shows with like teenagers, I always notice I'm like, who says things like that? And it'll be them using some weird form of slang that was a thing like 25 years ago. And I'm like, I don't think kids today talk like this. Um, but oh my gosh, no, yeah, like, uh, did you watch Drake and Josh back in the day? Yeah. Oh my god great show but (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if i talk about this on the podcast before but there was like the one episode where there was like a magician guy and he like needed a place to crash for a couple of nights i guess so the grown adult man musician stayed in drake and josh's bedroom in their house and like he had to have like a CPAP machine or it was like this whole thing which like i didn't question as a kid how freaking weird that is like if you had a strange man staying in your home and you let that you let them stay in your teenage son's bedroom yeah no i don't even remember that but tv back then 100 i mean even before that i was actually i watched this video on youtube and it was just it was like um like a ton of it was something like 10 adult jokes that were in the rugrats <laughs> and there's so just many like adult any, jokes and like children's stuff yeah um and some of like the more clean ones would like i guess um the dad stew would just wouldn't stop showing them the home videos and so the grandfather like pretends to have a heart attack and nobody like they're like stop it you're not having a heart attack um he was just trying to get out of having to watch more home videos and so he picks up the phone and he's like hello dr kevorkian i have a job for you and you know dr kevorkian was um someone who was helping his patients like commit suicide so just like wow that's weird that's weird Hello, 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Um, but yeah, so rate, comment, or review, follow us. You know, you know the drill, guys. Thanks. Um, and yeah, every review, we're going to be donating a dollar to the National Center of Victims of Crimes. And so we have a few now, so we can definitely do if you're, I don't know how much you want to wait till 20 bucks or something yeah 20 maybe yeah we can just do it and say we did it yeah although i did just drop a lot of money on tattoo we'll wait till the next payday (laughs) we'll wait till the next payday it's all good (laughs) (laughs) maybe wait till that stimulus check (laughs) can't wait um so yeah this week our um topic is rachel's awesome idea of couples um so at least one person being a woman um, within the couple um, <laughs> committing a crime. <laughs> so that's what we're getting into. I, like, just to preface, I um, chose this case because I think it brought up just a very kind of interesting um, situation um, in which. It is a couple who's involved um, in a murder, but um, the reasons for the complicity of the woman, in my opinion, are questionable. And so my case is of Edith Thompson. Um, And so getting right into it, um, born on Christmas in 1893, Edith Jessie Graydon was the oldest of five. She was raised in London, England, um, and Edith was known to be a very happy girl who was as talented as she was smart. She shined in dancing and acting and um, naturally excelled in uh, what a source called arithmetic, which for us Americans, that's just math. (laughs) (laughs) And so... um, By 16, Edith left school and began working in the clothing industry. Not long after, she developed a reputation of being stylish, intelligent, and extremely capable at her job, eventually getting promoted to chief buyer for Carlton and Pryor, which is or was some sort of like fashionable women's hat company. So good for her. Um, Also around the age of 15 um, and 16, in 1909, Edith met Percy Thompson, who was 18 years old at the time. They soon became engaged and were married in 1916 after a six-year engagement. In 1920, the couple became acquainted with 18-year-old Frederick Byers. Edith was about 27 or 28 at the time. And although this was the first time Percy had become acquainted with him, Edith had actually met Frederick almost a decade prior because Frederick was actually one of her little brother's school friends. And so that means he was like about nine years old when she first met him. Um, And so now at 18, Frederick was a ship's steward in the merchant navy. 
Um, I assume a merchant navy is like a navy navy. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, I don't know exactly what it. It's in the it's a military. Can tell you, right? I don't know. Um, and so, Frederick is described as being handsome and impulsive. Due to his line of work, Frederick had been able to travel to different parts of the world, and his stories of his travels captivated Edith, who um, pretty immediately developed an attraction for Frederick. Unlike her husband, Percy, who was described as being serious, dull, and very conventional, Frederick more closely resembled Edith's ideal romantic partner. Um, of course, Percy was unaware of his wife's feelings for Frederick, so um, he was actually very welcoming of Frederick and considered him like a family friend at that point. Um, the couple didn't have any children. Um, Percy even invited Frederick on vacation or, as the Brits say, on holiday. <laughs> I love that they say that. I for a while when I was younger it confused me. I was like, what holiday was it? <laughs> um and so um so yeah, Percy invited Frederick on vacation with he and Edith and then Edith's sister to the Isle of Wight. Um and even after they returned from the trip, because um Frederick had some time before he had to ship back out with the merchant navy um so whatever they might do <laughs> boats something something with boats yeah um and so percy invited frederick to stay with them like for until he needed to leave um and so by the following year um edith and frederick were in a full-on affair of course percy figured out what was going on and confronted both of them Frederick and Percy got into a bit of a scuffle um, because Frederick and sorry. So Frederick and Percy got into a bit of a scuffle and because Frederick had all of the nerve and audacity of a dumb teenager, he literally demanded that Percy divorce his wife so that he could so that he could be with Edith and marry her instead. And so I'm just like, who do you think you are to like tell someone like you need a divorce like your wife? Um also, side note, I'm as I'm looking at my script, um, it looks like instead of Percy in a lot of cases, I write pervy. So <laughs> those C and V are like right next to each other on <laughs> not give you like a red squiggly line, although I guess pervy's a word. Pervy is a word. So um yeah let's let's do this <laughs> so um of course pervy per jeez <laughs> i'm keeping that one in i'm keeping that little flub in um so of course percy kicked frederick um like the heck out of his house um, later, Edith described getting into a very violent um, altercation with Percy. She said that right after Frederick left, Percy was very angry, which, you know, I don't think is surprising. And I'm not going to fault someone for being mad, finding out that their like partner is having an affair with someone they considered a friend or in general. Um, but Percy's anger went beyond just yelling. Percy hit Edith in the face several times and threw her across the Not room okay. in his fit of rage. Yeah. No matter how angry you are. Like, um, just leave. Just walk away. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I feel like the only cases where hitting someone is 
like justifiable as if you are defending yourself or I don't know if they took the crown off of your head on the bachelor <laughs> um anyway <laughs> still uh, edith was enamored with frederick who um had left with the merchant navy for a year-long expedition um at sea and so he was gone from september 1921 to september 1922 during that time, Edith wrote over 60 love letters to Frederick detailing her life, feelings, memories. Um, she would tell him about like things that she was reading, um, just kind of like any thought or imagination or anything that she had, she would just write in letters and keep him kind of abreast of her life. Um, and so although, although Edith and Percy went back to business as usual in regard to their relationship, when Frederick got back, the affair between he and Edith resumed. And so as a reminder, Frederick is a very impulsive guy that combined with his age, you know, frontal lobe not being developed yet and being I'm going to say irrationally in love with a married woman who he believed to be miserable with her husband um, was kind of a recipe for disaster. And so a month after he got back, so it was early October 1922, Edith and Percy had gone out on just a nice little date, you know, a nice little outing to the theater as, you know, Brits are apt to do I think it's pronounced theater <laughs> the theater um and so they were in central London they um had to take like a train they got back um to like where they lived um from the train and so they were walking back home and a man jumped out from behind some bushes and attacked Percy with a knife um, Edith was terrified and screamed no don't multiple times during the attack um, or sh different reports say she was screaming oh no um, oh don't things like that either way she was terrified and kind of pleading for this person to like not hurt them um, in the scuffle Edith was like thrown to the ground um, and Percy he held his own for a while but um he was eventually stabbed and so percy died on the sidewalk before um help even got there the attacker had gotten away but not before edith had a chance to see his face it was frederick um mm -hmm. saw uh, that one coming yep and so once the police arrived edith told them everything including naming her lover frederick bywaters as the man who violently murdered her husband not only that, Edith told them how she knew Frederick, but as far as I can tell, um, I don't think she told them like the full capacity like of their relationship. Um, and so police conducted an investigation of Frederick, which soon led to them arresting him on the charge of, mur of murdering Percy Thompson. Um, as they searched Frederick's belongings, they discovered the 60 plus love letters that Edith had written to Frederick while at sea. To the police, uh, the, love the love letters were evidence of Edith's complicity in the murder of Percy. The letters were the only evidence that they had for linking Edith to the attack. However, um, like, so, okay, as far as I can tell, nothing in the letters said yo boo i want you to murder my husband <laughs> okay <laughs> like uh, like seriously like nothing said that in in the letters um 
but I will get into some other things where they're like, oh, see, she's a bad person. Um, so it basically investigators believe that the letters allowed for something called the consideration of common purpose. And so common purpose in the sense mean that if two people want like a third person to someone else to die and there's a, I think the, um, Sounds like a helicopter. I think the Air Force is doing their stupid thing. Like, where they just fly around. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Um, I'm not going to edit that part out either. Whatever. Um, It's action. Live action. (laughs) And so, as I was saying, so common purpose in the sense means that if two people want, like, a third person, so someone else to die, and one of the two people acts on that desire then both people are equally guilty that's stupid very stupid and i see a lot of flaws in that kind of way of thinking but it's here we are they were plotting together and one person carried out the act yeah yeah with the plan that they came up with together but mm -hmm. if one person's just like god i hate this person i Mm -hmm. wish they were dead and the other person just takes takes that that and runs with it Mm -hmm. i don't think that other person is to blame yeah, I 100% agree. I think that, yeah, very flawed here. Um, so because of the common purpose nonsense, um, Edith was arrested and um, they both were charged with the murder of Percy Thompson. So in December of 1922, the trial began and Frederick was very cooperative with the investigators. Um, he led them to the murder weapon. Um, he fully explained like what his thought process was that day and like what basically his plan, like what he was trying to do. And he insisted that Edith had nothing to do with the attack and she didn't know um, what he was planning to do. Still, the officers believed that Edith's letters were evidence that she um wanted her husband dead so basically what was written in the letters so of course edith was like you know vehemently and like passionately declaring her love for frederick and that she didn't want to be with her husband or she wanted to be free of percy Mm -hmm. um she also wrote um something about grinding up a light bulb into small shards and like mixing them into mashed potatoes and like feeding them to her husband and then she weird mm -hmm, as like i guess as a means of murder um would that even kill a person yeah if they were ground up small enough they wouldn't puncture your like intestines yeah um and she also wrote about like like putting poison in food um Either way, like, clearly nothing had happened to Percy. And so there is a question of, like, whether or not, like, she actually did those things or if it was just writing. Um, So if she did do those things, clearly Percy survived them. Um, um, Basically, she also wrote that she was just, like, desperate to be, like, free of Percy. And so I think her writing, like, that she was desperate to be free of him i think that that is what prosecutors took and kind of ran with and been like see like that means she wanted her lover to go to desperate means um it was a stretch it was truly a stretch in my in my opinion it was a stretch but also considering that she was writing all these ways that she was thinking about murdering him that makes me Mm -hmm. feel like she is heading in the direction of being more complicit yeah because if she was 
saying I am planning to do these things or I would like to do these things, then she is crossing that line. It's one thing if she's just saying, like, I don't want to be married to this person anymore. I'd like to be free. And then that's that. But if she's escalating it to the point of here's what I'd like to do, then I can see where they would have an argument there. I so I I, I get that, too. Um, and I, I don't um, disagree. But um, I will say that I feel like the case is stronger if she's like, oh, I, you know, like thought of poisoning him and then um, Frederick poisoned Percy. True, Like, I think it's like, even if she wrote that, hey, I fed him poison, I think because nothing happened to him, that is not a crime. (laughs) Like, uh, it is a crime. It is a crime. But I'm saying it's not a crime that they can prove prove yes it's not it's not something that they can prove and so it's just words on a paper on a piece of paper now if she'd written you know i put shards of glass in his food it didn't work and next thing you know like frederick becomes a chef at his favorite restaurant and is putting (laughs) light bulbs in all of his meals like again that's a different situation um but yeah i do think for the most part even though there's like slight circumstantial things going on all they have are these letters there's nothing else even if she said oh i wish that he would just get like attacked or like how wonderful it would be if some random if if there was was just a random act of violence yeah right in that case i it's a gray area for Mm -hmm. me yeah i'm gonna pause and save so her lawyers at the so at the trial her lawyers told her that it was best that she not take the stand so their kind of um thinking or rationale for that is that the burden of proof for proving that she was somehow involved or complicit uh was fully on the prosecution and so by her um taking the stand it gives them more opportunity to either poke holes in what she's saying or just make her a less sympathetic defendant um and so they're generally like, too i feel like they don't all lawyers will encourage people not to go on the stand i feel oh. like in almost every case that's okay. like very very common okay good to know um so yeah they really like, don't do it um but given the nature of the case um like it became really sensationalized in the news and the media like people were kind of like whoa like you know here's a case of like an affair gone wrong um or thinking oh look at this like young guy who was just so in love with this woman that he did you know this horrible thing just to be with her it was lots of mixed kind of opinions on what was going on but people were captivated um also did they have tv back then i'm gonna say no so this was entertainment guys <laughs> like um they didn't have netflix like <laughs> <laughs> that's basically i feel like i say that every episode like they don't if you don't have tv i feel like that leads to more crime <laughs> <laughs> i mean the crime rate has been going down <laughs> Maybe it's because of Netflix. Oh my God, make that your next research study. I should. When people have good TV, they just commit less crime because. I mean, like, I do believe that, especially in the case of like crimes committed like way back when, because a lot of it just seems like they were doing. Like, I feel like a lot, I see a lot of people just doing crime for sport. 
mm-hmm. or it's just like imagine if you had something else to do like watch tv you probably wouldn't have killed that lady that day you know um <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope that's not the only thing standing in between. But I, Someone committed I just, murder. I just think it's a, it's an easy intervention. <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah, take, take everything that I say with a grain of salt, everyone. Guys, <laughs> if you have the urge to murder someone, just put on some put on, Netflix. Yeah, like watch you know, Bob's watch Burgers. Watch something lighthearted. Put some Shit's Creek on. You know, Parks and Rec. Just chill. Just. Or, yeah. you know, don't. Just don't murder. Like, just simple. do literally almost anything but that. Yeah. Just eat um, some cookies. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. We um, solved crime. We did it. We took care of it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the case was super sensationalized. And Edith seemed to kind of be enjoying the publicity that she was getting. Um, because I do believe, like, in her heart of hearts, she believes that she was a witness to her husband's murder not an accomplice and so i think in her mind it's like well i'm getting all of this attention and i know i didn't do it and there's no way they can convict me and so she just kind of liked the publicity and so she ended up insisting on testifying because you know it would get her more yeah yeah very bad call and so exactly what her lawyers were afraid of um happening um, and her testimony ended up being, quote, damning. Um, and so the prosecutors basically caught her either in like a series of like lies or just inconsistencies. And I think those were more specifically related to the affair. Um, and I think like it's not surprising one when someone has already been lying for, you know, a year plus about a specific thing. Mm-hmm. for I think to some degree like to to maintain a lie like that you do have to kind of start convincing yourself that the lie is the truth to some degree um and so I think um I think asking about a lot of those details about the affair um she didn't have straightforward answers to it um and yeah, I also it's think it's gonna make of, you look yeah up. Like exactly. unsavory. Exactly. Just to make you look bad. Exactly. Um, and so I think that was part of it as well. And so already being able to catch her in a series of lies obviously does worse to her character and her testimony. Um, in terms of her demeanor, she came off a little flirtatious. Um, she seemed to be, she seemed to have a lot of like self pity, like, like a little less concern, I guess, about now that her husband is dead yeah but like, like she wasn't sad enough yeah i mean she the was thing that people get called out for and then so she was but she also still had a lot of like pity for herself like look at oh, okay. look at the situation that i'm in now um you know and then sh- they also felt like she was a little melodramatic which i just think is sexism um i'm like i don't like her maybe she just was died yeah i'm like was maybe in front of her <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, What's an appropriate reaction to that? Oh my gosh. Um, And so in all, she just made like a really bad impression on the judge and on the jury. And so then she ended up getting like questioned about, um, basically they pull out specific like packages, passages from her letters to um, Frederick. And they would be like, what was the meaning of, you know, 
blah 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 and she a lot of times would just be like i have no idea um and again i think that relates back to both not especially since she is liking the publicity and some of the publicity was kind of a little bit in her favor to some degree like you know they're coming after this woman um not wanting to get negative publicity in that regard and then also um again she has been lying for you know a year or two at this point about this affair and so um i don't know i just feel like she's not in the mind space when it comes to the affair to even tell the truth um and so anyway um eventually like after the trial her lawyers actually said that if it wasn't for edith's vanity and arrogance that she would have actually had a great shot at being acquitted of the murder of her husband but unfortunately that's not what happened and so her testimony ended up basically like negating the testimonies of like her neighbors who like her neighbors either saw the attack or heard it and they testified they were like no she was screaming for this person to stop like like it was like cries of you know horror and Mm -hmm. all of these things which painted her in a good light like if somebody was you know complicit in this you could expect that they might have had a different like reaction maybe um and Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't be actively screaming for help before you know because somebody could have stopped it you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and um i don't, like these aren't words that i have written um okay so also her testimony also um kind of negated the statements of the police officers who had actually arrived on scene and so those testimonies from the officers again were actually in favor of edith um they were like no the woman that i saw that day she was in a genuine state of shock she was devastated Mm -hmm. and in disbelief she it was almost like she was incoherent um looking at her husband's body like oh god why did he do it i never wanted him to do it Mm -hmm. um and again if she was complicit why would she have named her lover Right. Like it could have been traced back to her. Um, Anyway, so throughout the trial, Frederick um, continually stated that Edith didn't know of his plans. Um, And so his justification or reasoning for that was um, that day he actually didn't intend to murder Percy. He was just staying kind of outside of um, like on their route home like he knew they weren't home and so he was just like near their house hiding and his plan was actually just to confront percy and like threaten him and like force him to like acknowledge that this woman is not in love with you divorce her so i can be with her and so like i mean i'm the first person who's gonna say like if you brought a weapon i believe your intention was to use said weapon but again we are talking about a hothead teenager like who has already been described as very like impulsive um and so um according to frederick he said that when he came out um and was like confronting percy like before he could even really say anything percy like reacted in defense he reacted aggressively and i don't think percy's wrong for that if somebody jumps out in front of me and i'm with like you know 
my partner, like I, I may feel this need to defend. <laughs> um, and so once Percy reacted that way, um, Frederick says that he lost his temper and that's when he decided to use the knife. And then he ran off after that. He was adamant that um, even in those letters and any conversations that Edith made no suggestion to him that he should kill Percy. Um, and when they did ask him about the letters and what Edith had written about, like, you know, the light bulbs and poison, he said that he had never believed that Edith had actually attempted to harm Percy. He believed that she wrote about the poison and the light bulbs um, as like, just kind of her vivid imagination um Mm -hmm. and he also kind of cited like look at the other she wrote about like the books that she was reading so like look at you know some of those narratives and like what they were talking about like they were this was just an imagination fueled especially by some of these novels um and that a lot of times the way she was writing the novels was her viewing herself in some way as like one of those fictional characters and see well, yeah, another... it's not illegal to wish someone mm-hmm. would die yeah and so it was being written more in like a narrative sense and not like an actual account of life um and see again if she had television she wouldn't need to be writing stories <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We clearly have authors today. (laughs) Um, And so despite the only evidence of Edith's possible involvement being the letters, on December 11th, 1922, the jury found both Frederick and Edith guilty. And they both were sentenced to death by hanging. What? Yep. Insane. I, like, yeah. I think it's... I don't think either of them warranted that <laughs> at yeah, all but I, especially not edith yeah i feel like the punishment does not fit the crime here at all like not even not even close i wouldn't even say life imprisonment would be appropriate for this case especially no. not for edith like maybe give her a couple years if you really feel like it but yeah i felt like it was insane um and so once the like verdict and sentencing was read um understandably edith became like hysterical like she lost it and was screaming in the court like she could not believe that it didn't work out in her favor um and again i think that does speak to what her lawyers would later say about her vanity and arrogance like she just like there was no realm of possibility in her mind that like they it could convict out, her right. and so perhaps a little bit of like humility um could have gone a long way for her um and again while also while the after the verdict was read um frederick he started screaming loudly and protesting that edith was innocent like you can't convict her um And so throughout her imprisonment while awaiting execution, Edith uh, was often hysterical. Like she would just cry and like um, just be in just like an emotional kind of rage or panic um, about potentially or about her impending execution. Um, Or she was just in disbelief that she was about to be executed. Um, Her parents wrote to the king. the king i just think it's funny um anyway her parents wrote to the king hoping that he would overturn the death sentence um they tried to appeal to the courts um but 
and then Frederick also gave more testimony that Edith was innocent. But nothing worked in Edith's favor. And then they, they had their execution set for January 9th, 1923, so the following month. Don't tell um, me they actually executed her. Let me read my case. Okay. <laughs> so that morning, Edith screamed and cried and begged for her life. But there was no reprieve for her. Answers your question. Um, and so just before 9 a.m. that morning, they administered a sedative to her and gave her brandy to calm her nerves. Because, again, understandably, she was hysterical. Um she it actually took four people to drag her from the building to outside where the hanging would take place which also hanging people is like what 20s like what the actual heck maybe the 1820s i yeah what i gruesome i don't understand i mean any in my opinion yeah like x like the electric all of it it's awful um and so she so yeah they took four people to drag her out um and so right before like going up to like where it was taking place she actually collapsed and she wasn't able to actually walk herself up to the gallows and so they strapped her they had to carry her up there and then they strapped her into like a chair so that she would like sit (laughs) um and they put a white hood over her head and they placed a noose around her neck. Once the clock hit nine o'clock, the floor beneath her opened and she died. Um, at another prison just miles away, Frederick was executed um, at the exact same time. After the execution, an autopsy of Percy's body was conducted and it showed no signs that he'd ever been fed glass or any type of poison, both of which the medical examiner believed would have likely still have been detectable in his body since it, since the event like allegedly would have happened in that past year, um, unless she were somehow able to get access to like one of those more particular types of poisons that were undetectable, but they believe that that was also likely. Wait, they did the autopsy after they killed her? Yeah. So what was the point of doing the autopsy then? I don't know. Or why wouldn't you do it before? I don't know. (laughs) This is so frustrating. Yeah. Why would you do this to me? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, And so Edith was buried um, at the prison, which was, um, I guess, the rule or how it was done back then. And her mother, Ethel, requested that her daughter be buried at their family plot. But that request was denied. Oh, come on. That's literally the least you could do. Yeah. Um, So instead, Ethel repeatedly requested to visit Edith's gravesite at the prison. But those requests were also denied. So she was not even allowed to, you know, pay her respects at her daughter's grave. Um, Ethel died in 1983. So, um, no, 60 years after um, her daughter was executed. And her dying wish was that Edith be exhumed and her body buried beside her at their family grave. Um, in, in, In 2018... Ethel's dying wish was finally fulfilled and Edith's remains were laid to rest in her parents' grave 95 years after her father kissed her, kissed his daughter for the last time and promised her, you'll be home at last tomorrow night um, which was the night before she was executed That's um, 
Yeah. And so since her trial and execution, um, I've even seen like articles written relatively recently, um, just kind of discussing um, just some some of the nuances, I guess, of what was going on, but then also um, exactly what role um, sexism, the marginalization of women and different things like that kind of played in um, why Ethel was convicted and um, executed. Um, And so a lot of the narrative, I feel like, has been more in defense of Edith, um, with many believing that Edith's conviction and execution was due in large part to sexism. Um, Basically, you know, she was executed because she was a woman who had an extramarital affair. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just so happened that the man that she had an affair with made the poor decision to you know murder her husband and it's you know her feminine wiles must have driven him to that point because a man can't clearly be responsible like solely for his own actions um uh i read there was a quote by her name is sue sims and so her husband graham is the great nephew of edith's brother so just you know family um who wrote or who said that she was innocent And I think the way she describes the trial is actually very accurate in which she says um, the trial, it was a trial of a woman's morality. And I think that that, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. Um, They felt that she had done something immoral by falling for another man and having an affair. Um, But I think the most damning part was that it was just written on paper. that she um yeah just the fact that it was that she had all of these love letters clearly saying that she loved this man um Mm -hmm. i think just worked very very much not in her favor but for whatever reason they chose to kind of sensationalize that against her um and so yeah there's also some like I guess conjecture, speculation that Edith was actually pregnant at the time of the execution because she had been refusing food while she was in prison, but she was still gaining weight. Um, and oh, interesting. Yeah, and it caused um, like the increased weight um, weight gain um, over that period of time w- caused um, her to like hemorrhage at her execution was which is not super likely um, but you know when you're pregnant you have kind of a lot more blood like running through your veins um, and so no I as far as I know they didn't um, they didn't do an autopsy or anything obviously because they knew how she died um, but mm-hmm. yeah that that is the case of uh, Edith Thompson um, and Frederick Bywaters. Um, it's a very disappointing one. I, I just felt like I really wanted to do it because I just feel like it, I, it just it, it was an inappropriate conviction. Um, yes. Like, yes, she's guilty of cheating on her husband. And I'm, I mean, maybe in the 19 whatever is that could have been illegal. I don't know. <laughs> Like, but also, like, it's still relevant today where someone's character might be in question when they're, like, on trial. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they committed a crime if they're just not a great 
person, you know, if they're cheating on their partner, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I feel like there are probably more recent cases that you can point to where someone ends up being convicted of something they didn't do just because of the fact that they're not a great person or didn't have a great history. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think I don't I can't speak for other countries, but I know, especially in the United States, I feel like in a lot of cases, people get put on trial in the court of public opinion first. Mm -hmm. And I think that that um, most of the time um, doesn't work in people people's favor. It, It has a negative impact on them, even if you just look at like cases of people who get murdered, like use like Trayvon Martin like a kid but because he posted a picture that you know he he like because he posted a picture that you wouldn't expect I guess a like 15 or 16 like yeah I think it was 15 like year old kid Mm -hmm. then that means he was guilty um and then I think they also did it with um Casey Anthony and you know regardless of your opinion on whether or not she did it like most of it was look at these pictures of her at the club look at these pictures of her with these bottles of like whatever this clearly means after she did the murder well it was after it was they i think they used like (laughs) pictures of her like while she was like while kaylee was alive as well and then also they're like and after she also was going to clubs and stuff and so just to kind of paint a picture of like clearly because she went to a club she's a negligible or negligent mother um moms can go to the club okay yeah, and- if you don't think i'm gonna be going to the club <laughs> i don't even go to the club now i don't know what i'm saying <laughs> but yeah and i mean in this like obviously a lot of people feel like you know she did do it but still it's just it's unfortunate that a lot of those things are that taken into account before right. evi- like hard evidence in fact or this freaking what I was talking about a couple weeks ago I think of the case of Richard Jewell where he was saved so many people from this bomb in the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta Mm -hmm. and the FBI pinned it on him yeah and everyone was convinced that he did it and like in reality all he did was just save a bunch of people's lives and then his life got like completely ruined for a period of time yeah so it's, it's highly highly unfortunate um i do think it's one of those things that will never be fixed unfortunately but mm-hmm. we are where we are what you gonna do okay so mine's a bit different but still falls into the the couple's theme but see i like i and I would love for people to like give recommendations kind of this way where we can both kind of go in our own direction. I think that's really cool. Um, but so I'm going to be talking about a couple that was compared to be a modern day Bonnie and Clyde. Although I strongly disagree with that comparison. We'll see what you think as we're going forward. Cool, um, cool. So this case started in September uh, 28th of 2015. A man wearing a faded red plaid button-up shirt and thinning, who had thinning blonde hair entered a big Y world-class market on Center Street in Ludlow, Massachusetts. I have no idea what a big Y world-class market is. I assume it's a type of grocery <laughs> store. Uh, we only have like Wegmans and like 
star markets and stop and shops, but who knows? Um, so he implied he had a gun, but no weapon was seen. The teller gave the man an undetermined amount of money and he left the store. A person outside saw him get into the back seat of a dark SUV with an unknown Massachusetts dealer plate. The man would later be identified as Joseph Carrier, and the woman driving the car was his wife, Jenny. The car, it turned out, was a 2015 Buick Encore and had been stolen from the dealership in Quincy, where Jenny had worked. Um, Jenny worked at the Prime Buick GMC in Hanover, but had called in sick over the summer, and then she never showed up to work ever again after calling out. The first robbery marked the start of a month-long multi-state spree of robberies that would span that's so redundant multi-state robbery that would span five states um and end in a police chase and crash i don't know if i wrote later on that there was a crash but i guess maybe anyway (laughs) (laughs) i will say that i had to piece together information from so many different articles so if there's a little bit of inconsistency or something doesn't quite line up I did not my our best. Problem. <laughs> I had to cherry pick a lot of things. Uh, part of it might be my fault, but part of it also might be from my sources. So if you really want to double check all like the 12 sources I went to, feel free and call me out, whatever. Um, but Jenny and Joseph were likened to a modern day Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde obviously are perhaps one of the most famous or infamous couples in American history. Bonnie helped Clyde escape from jail after he was arrested for burglary. This was back in the 1920s, 1930s, by the way. And at the end of their crime spree, it was suspected that they were responsible for 13 murders and numerous robberies. So not only were they robbing places, but they were also killers. And their spree ended in a shootout on May 23rd, 1934 in Louisiana, where they were shot to death by officers during an ambush so like i said earlier i'm not sure it's fair to compare jenny and joseph to this famous criminal couple yeah jenny and joseph were addicted to heroin now heroin is an opioid drug made from morphine which is taken from the pod of various opium poppy plants so heroin can be injected snorted sniffed or smoked And it works by entering the brain and attaching to opioid receptors on cells located in many areas, but especially those involved in pain and pleasure. And it can affect our heart rate, our sleeping, and our breathing. So we don't know how Jenny and Joseph started using, but in many cases, prescription opioid pain medicines like OxyContin and Vicodin open the door to heroin use. The short-term effects of heroin can involve unpleasant sensations like dry mouth, nausea, vomiting, clouded mental functioning, and going on the nod, so going in between a state of consciousness or semi-consciousness. I think um, like if you've ever seen a video of someone nodding out, that's what it looks like. But people also report feeling a rush or a strong surge of pleasure or euphoria. So using heroin over longer periods of time may result in insomnia, collapsed veins, infection, mental disorders like depression, and antisocial personality disorder, just to name a few. Heroin can also be mixed with certain additives like sugar, starch, powdered milk, and this can lead to clogs in blood vessels, causing permanent damage to certain organs. 
sharing needles, or impaired judgment from using heroin could also increase a person's risk of contracting infectious diseases like HIV and hepatitis. And there's always a risk of overdosing on heroin. So when people overdose, their breathing can slow or sometimes stop altogether, interfering with the amount of oxygen that reaches the brain. This is called hypoxia, and there are short-term and long-term effects. It can induce a coma or result in permanent brain damage, or it can result, obviously, in death. Um, So if someone you know is struggling with addiction, naloxone is a medicine that can be used to treat opioid overdose, but it needs to be used right away at the time of the overdose. So it works by binding to the opioid receptors, blocking the effects of heroin and other drugs. And this drug has been essential in saving many people's lives and preventing overdoses. And in some states, you can get naloxone from a pharmacist without a prescription from a doctor. So I'm going to include a link for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's Opioid Overdose Prevention Toolkit in our podcast description. So, um... You know, if you have never encountered someone struggling with an addiction or aren't aware of the effects of repeated drug use on the mind or body, it can be easy to blame the individual or think, like, why don't people just stop using drugs? Like, it's clear that just say no is not something that works, which is why I believe it's more important to focus on harm reduction in these situations. So very pro naloxone you know if you or someone you know um is suffering with addiction just having that around can make the difference between life or death very important thing um And so heroin is a highly addictive substance. When you use more regularly, you start to build a tolerance. So you need to use more of the same drug to experience the same high you were getting before. Uh, So like, it's it's not fun to have an addiction. I think that like, I just wanted to list like all these negative effects that come along with it. That like, it's not just that people are able to just quit or it's a matter of willpower at a certain point. Um, Heroin withdrawal can start just a few hours after the drug was last taken. And withdrawal symptoms include restlessness, muscle and bone pain, sleep problems, diarrhea, vomiting, cold flashes, and uncontrollable leg movements. Like, just take a second and imagine the sickest that you've ever been. And what if you knew you were able to take something to feel better? Like, you knew, like, oh, if I just take this, like, all of the experiences of terribleness will go away. Like, just, I'm thinking just now, after um, my second COVID shot, how horrible I felt. (laughs) Which, like, wasn't even bad at all. Was not really that bad. Um, And I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I'm dying. Oh, my God. I was like, (laughs) part of it, too, is that, like, I have anxiety. So, like, when I start to feel bad, it spirals out of control. So I was, like, actually starting to have a panic attack on top of not feeling great. Um, Fun things. Anyway. But, like, in that moment, you just are so desperate. Like, think if you've ever gotten, like, food poisoning. You're, Mm -hmm. like, so desperate. If you're, like, oh, my God, if I could, like, take a pill and this would go away, you would probably do it. You're... like functioning your thought processing is impaired because you're just so overwhelmed by how terrible you feel yeah and you know for kind of in favor of withdrawing um there are there are you know medical options um Mm -hmm. so buprenorphine um buprenorphine naloxone treatment and um or suboxone um Mm -hmm. can help you 
withdraw and like mitigate those withdrawal symptoms so you'll be more or less fine um and then throughout the kind of three-day withdrawal period um or even longer and then continue to do treatment um with buprenorphine so that you um you know kind of get off of or i guess taper off of opioids um so just an option you can right you know something to consider if you or anyone who's listening um knows anyone or needs it yourself um yeah yeah i think the efficacy of medication assisted treatment is something that should be highlighted more and mm-hmm. i think sometimes it's looked down upon in a in a negative light you know if you need to be on like methadone or um, some other medication for the rest of your life in order to avoid using, then absolutely like do that. That is a better, like I said, kind of harm reduction is like obviously the best case scenario would be just say no, like don't use, but obviously that's not realistic in most situations. So how can we reduce harm to people and in these cases, medication-assisted treatment, I think has been linked to higher, out like, um, less death from overdose. So yeah, it has. Whatever has the results, I <laughs> stand behind and say we should encourage more people to do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I I think it it also um, getting it increases likelihood of staying in substance use treatment as opposed Mm -hmm. to doing some other type of um plan i guess just going either cold turkey or tapering yourself so woo right right so yeah and part of what i wanted to do is highlight kind of the side effects to know that someone who's going through heroin withdrawal can be in a, in a not so rational place um, also long-term use can affect our decision making behavior control and our responses to stressful situations so again it's not just mind over matter when it comes to quitting drugs there are also so many other factors involved um, which like in a perfect world we would have and i think that in this case maybe this these robberies might not have happened if there was less judgment in the medical field if they were able to get the help they needed who's to say you know um really don't know much about like their backgrounds or or anything but i think it's important to consider that if they were able to get treatment if there was kind of like a judgment-free zone that they could go to then it might not have ended up this way so Mm -hmm. um the Ludlow robbery took place on September 28th, and the next robbery occurred on October 9th in West Sadsbury, Pennsylvania, at a bank branch located inside of a Walmart. And then after that, they ended up in Palm Coast, Florida. So, on like going from Massachusetts to Florida, I think it's like a 16 hour drive. I looked it up. So, they we're kind of all over the place, but so that was on October 12th. Um, and Joseph entered a Wells Fargo and told the teller, I have a gun, just give me your big bills. And he left the bank with $800, which like nowadays, I don't think you get very much money from robbing banks or like convenience stores or anything like that. Like to me, it's just not, (laughs) not worth it. Unless Um, you're doing money heist or what they did in money heist, you're probably not kind of get what they do in money heist. Um, so they basically occupy the, it's, 
it's a it's a show set in Spain, so they occupy what I think is the same the equivalent of like a the mint or wherever they print money, and oh, so okay. they take it over and they make it seem like their plan is just to steal the money but they actually start staying there for a while and you realize that what they're actually doing is just printing more money (laughs) oh dang that way the effectively the bills wouldn't be able to be traced because they haven't been Mm. put in yeah and so they're just printing and they have hostages like they have the hostages printing money and they get the hostages like on their side because they're like how many millions do you want like we can just print it (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh or yeah that's like uh the oceans 11's movie where they're like we're gonna go on the night where this big boxing match is happening so the casino has this much money rob a casino instead of bad guys no i'm kidding don't don't rob anywhere don't Um, i'm gonna cut that out i don't want you to go to prison (laughs) if they can if they can hang like edith for it was a joke guys it was a joke (laughs) No, oh my god, now you're making me scared. <laughs> no, I'm actually not, it's fine. Uh, don't don't rob places, guys. Um, so on October 16th, just before 1 p.m. on a Friday, Joseph entered a Bank of America branch and demanded money from a teller. Um, he This was in Aberdeen, Maryland, I believe, is where Aberdeen is located, question mark. Um, so he was seen entering a dark car after he left, presumably driven by Jenny. And at the time, the police were urging the public, they were like aware that there was kind of this spree happening. And they said, hey, public, call 911 if you see the couple. Don't try to co- make contact with them. We don't know what state they're in. Um, and now, obviously, they were wanted in Massachusetts, Florida, and Maryland. So an Aberdeen police sergeant, C. William Ryber, was interviewed by the Boston Herald, and he said, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm not expecting it to end with our bank. Not to sound cliche, but they're a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde. They're robbing banks and using the funds to support some sort of illicit activity. So I have, two a, a different interview with a different police a person that the opinions between the two are clearly different and I think just goes to show the importance of like how people might be portrayed in the media is based like a police sergeant is saying that is saying oh they're Bonnie and Clyde like no they're not they didn't murder anybody um yeah and it's just clearly not the same um but by making that comparison I think that that's that was an irresponsible thing to do especially as a as a police uh sergeant but so the the carriers too were traveling with a lot of dogs um which i think just goes to show that it was just kind of erratic behavior um so riber believed that they may be spotted very soon after the robbery due to the fact that the dogs would need to be let out quite often in the car you know you don't want your dogs like pooping everywhere that would smell terrible um so it required frequent stops along the road And in fact, one of the neighbors in Quincy had noticed the couple was gone in the first place in August because the dogs were no longer around. They were well known in their area because they had between seven and 14 dogs. Bit of a range there. Um, But after seeing their faces on wanted posters, the neighbor told CBS Boston, I'm shocked. I shouldn't be shocked. I suppose nothing in the world would shock me anymore. Which is like. Interesting. Are you still there? Yeah. Okay. I'm, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm literally just like nodding my head. I'm like, hmm. 
Okay. 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 I just want to make sure I don't lose you because I do that all the time and I just keep going. I get too into it. Um, So finally, the carriers were arrested after robbing a citizen's bank in Wilmington, Delaware. Joseph entered the bank and implied again that he had a gun and he took approximately uh, $2,400 and fled the scene in the Buick driven by Jenny. An alert was put on the police radio, and the Delaware State Police saw the Buick on the highway. Jenny was driving the car and did not stop when she saw the cops were tailing her. She reached speeds upwards of 100 miles per hour. And the couple was arrested when the chase came to an end just after the exit to the Philadelphia International Airport. So during the robbery spree, the couple's family had been cooperating with the investigation. Relatives had helped the police track down the couple because they wanted them to get treatment. At the time of the robberies, the couple was also experiencing homelessness, which I think is another factor. You know, if you don't have somewhere safe to go to, if you don't have somewhere safe to be, um, that can result in compromising like your safety and the safety of others another huge problem that can play a role in in you know crime so at the time of the arrest the couple had seven dogs with them but one of the dogs escaped during the arrest and ran across seven lanes of traffic and they never found him or her i hope i hope um someone found him or her and loved him or her forever I did, I did put that. I said, we hope the little pup was picked up and found a loving family. Um, so minds. The, the dogs that they had were Brussel Griffins, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that breed of dog. No, but they're, the, they're like the little ones and they look like Ewoks from Star Wars, which I'm not sure you'll get that reference either because I don't know if you've seen Star Wars is before. Isn't is Ewok what Chewbacca was? No, and oh. Ewok are these like little teddy bear guys. Um, oh, what a funny looking dog. Yeah. <laughs> they look interesting. Yeah. Like, but they're small. So if uh, they were like driving around with two adult dogs and like five little puppies, it wouldn't take up that much room yeah. in your car. You know, yeah. it wouldn't be. And like, clearly they like really cared for these dogs. They took them with them. And the, the dogs, the adults were named Olive and Wesley. And then they had the puppies. Um... Yeah, I think Brussels Griffins are, like, slightly ugly, but, like, I also have an ugly dog, but I think she's cute. I think the Some thing about... Think she's ugly. <laughs> the mo- exactly. I think the thing about most dogs is, like, if they're ugly, they're usually so cute, so ugly that they're cute. <laughs> right. See, like, I hated small dogs for the longest time, and then my family ended up getting like a small dog and she's like one of the ones with an underbite which like some of them can be like raw ugly but like i think she's cute but evan disagrees <laughs> i i yeah i don't like the dogs with under i'm like you look weird <laughs> but she's so cute and her teeth are so crooked she looks so ugly i love it i literally die for her <laughs> when i got ollie um, my friend, she had a puggle, so pug beagle mix, and we were just like looking at them, and um, we like I don't know, I one of us like looked at Ollie's teeth, and she was like, "Oh my god, they're so perfect compared to like Diesel, which is her dog," um, and she was just like, "See, that's the difference between a mutt and a purebred," and I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> 
Both of our dogs are mutts, and Peyton has nice teeth. I think it's more of like a smushed face dog thing. Yeah. Of like their teeth are just like totally jammed in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Poor puppies. Anyway, um, so they had these Brussels Griffin dogs, little Ewok dogs. Um, so the dogs were ended up being taken to a shelter. So hopefully those dogs too found nice loving homes. Um So, like I said, the family had worked with the Ludlow police and detective. So this is a different detective who seems to be more informed about uh, mental health and things like that. So Detective Sergeant Louis Tulick was or he discouraged the media from comparing the couple to Bonnie and Clyde and said Bonnie and Clyde actually killed people and were extremely violent. I don't think that's a proper term to describe this. And he said of the the carriers were very troubled, very sick, and were feeding a habit. They weren't doing this for thrills. They weren't doing this for profit. Yeah. And after the arrest, the detective sergeant spoke to the family, saying they were extremely relieved. I'm not sure many people in the family got a lot of sleep in the last 30 days, so when the robberies were occurring, and hopefully they slept better last night. He also said, uh, in reference to the carriers, they're going to get their help, though probably through the criminal justice system, and they're going to have to answer for what they've done. So he doesn't, you know, just entirely excuse their behavior, saying, you know, it's they did do things wrong. You know, they did, the people who were on the receiving end of their robbery, you know, it's traumatic to, to think someone has a gun and that your life is in danger, and that's something that could potentially affect you for the rest of your life. So I think he found a nice balance of not excusing what they did, but also recognizing that they're sick, that they are, you know, experiencing a mental illness. I think addiction is also like a mental illness, too, is is a physical illness. You know, it's an illness of our brains. And the addiction, too, has the added aspect of having those physical withdrawals and affecting, you know, our our judgment and things like that. Mm-hmm. So the couple was charged with bank robbery and aiding and abetting bank robbery for the Wilmington incident. Um, The stories that I found didn't really follow up beyond that as to like where they are, what they ended up being charged with. So, I mean, we can assume that they're in jail or in prison, Mm -hmm. um, hopefully. And if that's the case, you know, they're probably not getting any type of adequate treatment for their addiction unfortunately yeah other Um, than just probably limited access to right because you can still get drugs in prison apparently so right but i know they do in some prisons they do like groups and stuff they have like at my graduate program people went into prisons to do therapy um so it is possible that they might have access to mental health care, but also I think the that being in prison is very damaging to your mental health in the first place. So mm-hmm. um, who's to say that it was, you know, they probably weren't getting the care that they needed, but at the very least, you're right, like having limited access to, to drugs and hopefully, you know, once they get out, they're able to access the care they need and continue in their sobriety and, and kind of get back on track. Yeah. That's the case of the the carriers. <laughs> the not modern day Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, no, def I yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. No. Like definitely <laughs> like not. Like that police person that said that was just a weenie. 
unless like all he knew about Bonnie and Clyde was that they were a couple that robbed things. Maybe. Like, but even but then. But because you're ignorant and you yeah, shouldn't be making those comparisons. Exactly. Like, educate yourself, buddy. Um, yeah. No, I, yeah. I mean, it's sad. Like, you see stuff like that happen all the time. And it's um, like, uh, yes, you're wrong for committing a crime. But in a lot of ways, it's the symptom of a larger disease. Right. Um, and so it's disappointing because it is like, you know, it, again, it is a symptom of a literal disease. But in this case, because it's not necessarily victimless, um, mm-hmm. it's it's a crime, obviously. Well, yeah, it'd so. be one thing if we had a more perfect system where people had access to treatment, where there were, you know, kind of non judgmental spaces they could enter and if in that case you know people still chose to to inflict harm on others then absolutely but you're right our system is not anywhere near perfect and you know who's to say how much that contributed to to what ended up happening yeah so yeah definitely. I, just, I just hope the little doggy's okay Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.